Look, uh, I I would love to tell you about how today was a day where I I I did a lot of small things that I've been putting off for a while. I would love to tell you about an interaction where a plumber quoted me or I was quoted and then I heard about it secondhand, like a price 1,000 times over the the usual price for something pretty straightforward and simple. Uh, I'd love to tell you about how I heard about a meeting to do some very simple things that cost somebody $500. I would love to tell you about all those things. What I'm going to instead talk to you about is a woman named Kathy. Kathy, I don't know much about other than her name is Kathy and that she was in the car in front of me at the CVS drive-thru when I was picking up some medications today. And uh, she was in the car in front of me. And normally it's a long-ass wait there. Like, I don't know if they're making each pill individually on the in, in whatever back room they make things in. But uh, Kathy... Uh, she paid for my meds. Um, she she had some extra money and put twenty bucks, and my meds were only nineteen. And uh, I didn't ask her to. I didn't know she did this. I pulled up to the window, and the the little the the little cashier person, whomever they might be, said, "You know, oh, it's you know, it's no problem. The person ahead of you paid for it." And I broke down crying because uh, that's remarkably nice. My, uh, I, I can't imagine that. I would love to do that. I really would. I would love to be somebody who's like, I'm going to buy the next 10 people a cup of coffee or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. But I've never, I've never had the means. And when I had the means, I was way too selfish. But I'm very thankful for Kathy right now because it's been a day. It's been a long day. It's been a hell of a day. And uh, I'm real thankful to be here. I'm real grateful to have a chance to, do this and answer some questions tonight, but uh, let me just impress upon you this. Be nice to people. Be genuinely nice to people. Uh, I think things will surprise you when that happens. All right. Shall we get started? Let's go. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. Well, here we are again, you and me, answering questions as we do every week. It's really nice to see you. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing okay. If it if the weather is nice by you, I hope you are enjoying it. If not, I hope the weather passes swiftly. It's been a week. Um, I'm, I'm real grateful to be here. So thank you 
Everybody, each and every single person, every subscriber, every follower, every watcher, every this, every that. Thank you. It's good to be here. If you don't know what this is or if you're new, hi, I'm John. Uh, that's not me in the in the thumbnail. I'm John, and it's my job to help you write better. And I've been doing this job for half my life, and I love it. It's the best ever, ever, ever. Love it to death. And this is the Writer's Chat for May 10th. 2023? What year is it? I never put the year on these things because I can never keep it straight. But it's the writer's chat for May 10th. And the writer's chat, if you don't know, is a giant Q&A where I'm going to answer questions from all corners of social media. Questions about writing and editing and marketing and publishing and contracts and AI and this, that, and the other thing. Plus the questions from whoever else is here in chat. Hi, chat. Hi, YouTube. Hi, Twitch. It's good to see you guys. I hope you're doing well. Whatever questions you guys have, I'm always happy to answer. If this is the first time you're hanging out, welcome. I hope you stay. I'd love to hear your questions. I'd love to get you some answers. But we have an intro to do, so let's do that intro. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, enthusiasts, mommies, daddies, sweater wearers, thigh-high owners, fetishists, Roofers, Tylers, Masons, law students, paralegals, hardworking people, honest people, people who struggle, people who don't want to struggle anymore, anybody who's ever had to change a flat tire, anybody who's just come home and sat down and wished the day was different. Hard workers, thinkers, planners, people paralyzed by choice, people paralyzed by fear, people who got up and did it anyway. Hard workers, soft workers, medium workers, anybody who wants to be a worker. And most importantly, the comrades. Here we are. Let's have one hell of a chat, shall we? First question. Here we go. Is there a difference between a writer and an author? Well, um, the words are different. But we're not talking about the words. We're not. We're not talking about how... Like they have different letters in different orders or things. We are we are entirely talking about the 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 kind of fabricated idea that an author is somehow more serious or elitist or superior to a writer, that an author is a writer who's been published, and a writer is somebody who's just writing, as if just writing is somehow a like a problem or a fault or a flaw or insufficient. Like writers are the junior varsity and authors are the varsity. If I can, if I can use a metaphor like that. And I don't know when this distinction got made. I wasn't consulted. There wasn't a vote. I didn't contribute to it. I think it's a dumb distinction to make. I think it's a foolish distinction to make. And I think it's one of those things where people insist on having it because they're busy judging themselves and they're busy judging their own work. They want to be an author. They want to be this thing. They have this idea about how the future should be. And it's different than what they're doing now because all of a sudden maybe there's more money involved or maybe they take it more seriously or maybe other people take them more seriously or some, some reason, some thing, some pile of things. And they, they take it and they make this personal definition that they struggle with and they grapple with. 
And um, there's no reason to. Like, writers write and authors write. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's sort of like that distinction between chef and cook. And some cooks don't want to be called chef, and some chefs don't want to be thought of as cooks. But really, in the end of the day, everybody's wearing an apron and everybody's making some food. Writers write. Authors write. It's not about a hierarchy. It's not about leveling up. It's not about earning some badge or permission slip that allows you to, to go to a different level or tier. Like, oh, now you get to sit at the big kid table. No no nonsense like that. That's That's just bullshit. It's just straight up bullshit that allows some people to gatekeep and allows some people to exclude others. And I hate that flat out. Like it just, it's just sad. It just makes me angry. It's not a thing that needs to be a thing. There is no distinction between writer and author. And every time I I talk to somebody who makes a distinction between writer and author, I, I just want to sigh a lot. I just want to roll my eyes. I just want to look at them square in the face and say, why? Why do you have to do that? Why do you have to divide? And why do you have to make layers and levels? Why can't we just be artists? Why can't we just be people making things? Why do you have to have that hierarchy in place? There's just no need. You don't need to do it. There is no difference between a writer and an author. The words are different, but the meaning is the same. They're people who produce prose text, books, stories, manuscripts, art, whatever you want to call it. There's no difference, though. There should be. Please don't make it one. There's no point. Also, hello. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Happy Wednesday. I hope you're doing okay. On we go. Is it wrong to use AI to help break out of writer's block? Yes, it's wrong. AI is bad. Now, look, let's put aside, let's just put aside the the usual nonsense that comes up. Oh, John, you're an anarchist. Ho, 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 ho. No, look, look, let's just, let's just speak you to me back and forth. AI is wrong. Using it is exploitative. Using it is destructive. Using it is capitalist. Using it is harmful to somebody somewhere in the process that you've probably never considered before. There's, there's no reason to use it unless, unless you are like deeply concerned with speed or productivity or trying to be something that you're not. AI is antithetical to art. AI is the opposite of making a thing because you're a human and you have something to create. AI is some tech bullshit. Now, it's it doesn't fit in with writer's block because writer's block is a bigger problem. And using AI to break out of it is not solving the problem. You are, you know, putting a band-aid over the Grand Canyon. Because your problem ultimately is going to come back because writer blo- writer's block has to do with you. And whatever tool, whatever bullshit, whatever shortcut, whatever magic trick, whatever thing you've convinced yourself is going to be the difference maker, you are avoiding dealing with the real problem. It is wrong. It is unethical. It is lazy. It is foolish. It is cowardly. What else would you like me to say? How else would you like me to describe it? 
AI is not going to treat your writer's block. AI is what you're going to get way too deeply invested in to avoid dealing with the problem of your writer's block. Because writer's block comes out of fear, paralysis, anxiety, expectation, things that are installed in your head either by yourself or what you think other people want to put in your head. So um, how is this AI supposed to do that work for you? Hmm? What's your brilliant plan? How are we going to 10x your productivity, bro, so that you can totally crush it? Because it, it doesn't work that way. It, it doesn't. It's, it's not here to help you. It's not, it doesn't give a shit. It's not going to solve your problem. It's not going to make you a better writer. It's the lazy, popular, trendy tool of the minute. And it's going to go away just like NFTs, just like pogs, just like slap bracelets, just like bullet journals, just like sourdough bread. All trendy things that popped up and then kind of went away. But it doesn't help you solve the problem. Solve your writer's block. Figure out where you got that shit plugged into your head and what you're going to do about it and how you're going to sit down and write and how you're going to create and what you're afraid of and what you're going to do about it. And how you're going to make it work. And how you're going to deal with yourself. And how you're going to meet yourself. And then you won't need AI. Then you won't need, you know, to stare at random things. You'll figure yourself out. You'll meet yourself along your creative path. Which is all we can ever hope for and all we ever want. Please don't use AI. Please don't. Create art. Work on yourself. The two things are linked. And you'll be fine. Great question. Question three, why do you think the way people talk about writing has changed? Now, I think there are two reasons. I really do. I think there are two reasons. The first is social media. I think social media in its earlier stages, in its, in its early, newer, headier days, allowed people to connect to one another. And allowed people to share whatever without trying to rank it or prioritize it or evaluate it. Just share it. You could find fan fiction about damn near anything. You could talk to somebody about whatever obscure hobby or interesting little quirk of existence you wanted. You could totally do that. And when it came to talking about writing, it was just, oh, you write? That's awesome. Tell me more about what you're writing and I'll tell you more about what I'm writing. But then all of a sudden, social media came along and it changed. It stopped being about everybody's relatively on equal footing and it became more corporate. It became more hierarchical. It became more, well, we are literary and you are whatever you are. Insert dismissive hand gesture here. And over time, that has a really corrosive effect on the idea that everybody who's making stuff is inherently equal entirely because they're just making stuff. Whether I'm writing a fantasy novel and you're writing a romance novel and that person over there is writing an instruction manual and over there I think those two people are making a cookbook rather than evaluate it and say, hey, we're all making things. Isn't that cool? We're looking at things now saying, oh, well, you're writing this kind of thing. That's, that's going to be less successful than me. I must be better than you because I'm writing something that has themes in it or something. Or whatever other nonsense we want to talk about or use. It doesn't ultimately matter. But I think social media, when it made that transition away from, hey, we could just talk. 
to, hey, we should rank and prioritize and gatekeep and develop better strategies. Who's doing the meta the best? Who's ahead? Who's winning? I think that began to change and affect how writing was discussed. Secondly, I think when people saw that profit needed to be, for whatever bullshit reason, needed to be a more important driver than enthusiasm or quality or craft, I think that changed the way writing was discussed because now all of a sudden writing was ammunition. Writing was a commodity. Writing was a widget. Writing was material to be used elsewhere and that some material was made better, manufactured better, not because someone put more care or put more craft or put more education behind it, but because they catered to it being more popular. They catered it to it being a more trendy thing. They catered to producing it faster, not necessarily better, just faster and more churning out thing after thing and over time that habituated people not to art takes as long as art takes and everybody's just got to be patient it's transmogrified everything into this idea that you know we only have about a 90 second attention span and i've watched people on tiktok like slide you know flick their thumb and flip through like 15 tiktok tiktoks videos whatever they called on tiktok they just skim through 15 if the first like three seconds doesn't engage them. It has addled us. It has toxified us. It has poisoned us. It has ruined our connection with creation. Because now we talk about writing in terms of what's popular. Now we talk about writing in terms of what's marketable. Now we talk about writing in terms of what's going to get us content or eyes or clicks or links or traffic. And I think that's social media's fault. I think it's commodification's fault. I think it's profit's fault. I think loads of things and loads of people who needed to be right and needed to be heard and needed to be validated because they were feeling, I don't know, out of control or they wanted more control or they were selfish or scared or stupid. For whatever reason, they, they needed to make a system where they were in charge and they needed to make a system where they could dictate how other people should be. They're bullies whether they're leading a hashtag writing community or whether they're a corporate CEO or whether they're, you know, just a really popular person who's cornered some avenue of social media. They're just chokeholding the conversation, strangling it, dictating how it should be talked about and what you should think if you want to be one of the cool kids and what you should do if you want to be one of the cool kids and leveraging that FOMO, leveraging that, well, come on, you don't want to be a loser, do you? turning everything into that middle school and high school panic, making us feel inadequate again instead of empowered because we're artists. I think that's why talking about writing has changed. When you couple that with something more mundane, like we stopped prioritizing the craft and we started prioritizing the end result, I think you're going to see a lot of things change when we talk about writing. If you go right now and go look at some, one of the more newer uh, social media like avenues like uh, Substack notes, you will see loads of people talking a lot of very bullshitty head up the ass kind of stuff because that's the cloud, that's the fog bank that rolls in everywhere it goes. It's pervasive because it's it's what we're used to. We don't want to change. We don't want to go backwards. We want to go forward. So we keep doing the same thing. We keep having the the same 
I have elbow patches on my jacket. My head is way up my ass and there's a stick up there too. Aren't I so smart kind of discussions as opposed to somebody coming up to you and just being real about, hey, I'm writing a romance novel with two dudes and they kiss a lot. Or I'm writing a fantasy novel based entirely on, you know, like what would happen if the Knights of the Round Table were Muppets. We don't talk about it like that anymore. We should. We really should. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody here? I don't even know who's here. Let me look and see who's around. Anybody with questions? Anybody? About anything. Should I tell you about the tea? Would you like a cup date? I still haven't made a graphic, but okay. The cut the, the tea today is uh, it's another glass of really strong fruity Mexican tea. Uh, this one tastes an awful lot like pomegranate. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm I'm happy with it. It's it's one of the things bringing me much joy today. I can't say it's terribly like super caffeinated. Um, it's got a little bit in there. Like I feel I'm feeling kind of you know up about it. But I was nervous and anxious all day, so maybe that's just that. But it's it's pretty good tea. I would recommend it. You can get it at Trader Joe's. Uh, it's it's part of the is it Tahara? Tajara. It comes in two flavors. Uh, this is the fruitier one. It's not bad. I would recommend it. All right. Any other questions as I go sip my tea? There's also like a big giant liter bottle of water down at my feet. What are my thoughts on the writer's strike? Well, that's a great question. Uh, of course, all solidarity and all power to all people on strike. They deserve uh, far more than they're even asking. And to, to you can really see people's misunderstanding of how things are made when you look at the writer's strike. Like there are some people who are talking about the writer's strike about how, oh, those writers and their palatial estates, they just want more. And they, they don't have palatial estates. Every single writer I know from the, the guys who made Transformers all the way down to the people who wrote like cartoons on Netflix, they have either currently or in the last three to five years, had trouble paying all their bills. All of them. Every single one of them. I don't know a Hollywood writer who's not struggling financially. And I've known Hollywood writers 20 years. I think absolutely what you're seeing here is a misunderstanding of how the process works. We say things like, oh, I sold a script. And they think, ah, they just backed a truck up to the house with money. Or they sent me a big giant cardboard check and none of that's true because at the end of the day, it comes down to people in suits, business people, the same sort of business people that you would see in publishing. The people who don't understand how books are made are the same kind of vein of folks. And they think, well, yeah, they, you just write a thing and then someone hands you money. No, you've got to jump through a million fucking hoops and it's terrible. I believe every writer should be on strike. I believe the actors should follow suit because you're, you can't act without a writer. Writers put words there for the actors to use and manipulate. And while yes, some actors can write. Sure. Absolutely. The, the need here is you are starving the base of the tree that allows us to produce fruit. You can't have a television show you like. I don't care what it is, whether it's the trashiest, trashy, trashy soap opera all the way to the most like erudite thing. 
you need writers and writers deserve way more than they're asking for because they're not asking for much, but they deserve more than they're getting. So I believe the writer strike is well and justified and all power to all strikers and incredible solidarity. And if I had the means, like the, the genuine ability, I'd put on my comfiest shoes and be wherever they needed me to be. They need, they need signs. They need bottled water. They need somebody yelling and screaming. I'm your boy. Absolutely. You could use a quick reminder on something. What's it called when you abuse adverbs? Like abusing adverbs is a great way to describe it. Like X immediately laughed or Y said hesitantly. Yeah, you're just overusing them. What are some good ways to capture the intended feeling? Well, the feeling you're describing when you when you hook up with some adverbs isn't in the adverb because the adverb is just modifying something. Like immediately laughed talks about the speed at which the laugh happens. And what you're modifying in that case is the time for the laugh because you want the you want the reader to imagine a laugh happening at a certain point in time, which also means you want a laugh to sound, I'm making air quotes, sound a certain way. So in that case, instead of tagging on an adverb to modify some element of the verb, some portion of the verb, change the verb. Also, is it really critical that you have the adverb in the first place? Some people will point to go, yeah, I need, I need it to be clear. I need you to know. I need you to know, John, that how this was said was hesitantly or that this laugh happened right here at this second. And I get it. That's fine that you want to you wanna impart that specificity. But ultimately, what is that serving? How is it more clear? How is it painting a richer picture? How is it really helping me? It's helping me under, like if you give me a quiz and you were like, when did the laugh happen? It happened immediately. Check. But if you want me to imagine it as though I am in the room with the characters while this is happening, would you really call attention to the speed at which something happened? Or would you say more words about the thing that happened? Would you describe the laugh? I'm in the room. I'm watching it unfold in front of me. I'm in, I'm the invisible third party in this conversation modifying the time and modifying the way something is deployed is describing something to me, but is it the best description you got or would another verb work or would more sentences work? You don't want to lean on those adverbs. Are you talking about crutching on your adverbs where you lean on them and they become the dominant thing that you sort of staple all your descriptors to? Oh, this is what I mean because I've got this adverb and this happens and I've got that adverb where you, you, you lean on them too much and they become sort of like the tent poles that you build from. It's, it's the right idea. You want a tent pole on something, but it's, it's the wrong choice. You don't want to choose the adverb. You want to choose the thing the adverb is adverbing. You know, you want to pick that verb. You want to go for the description. You want to open yourself up to say more rather than go for the specific single answer. Like, we're not guessing an answer on a game show, right? Immediately laughed would be that sort of quick, immediate, immediately laughed. Boom, done, right, next, roll, spin the wheel. Pat, thanks, Vanna. Whereas um, you don't have to race the reader to the right answer. You want to develop the picture for the reader. X laughed. It was quick and sharp. It sounded like knives period. Move the reader along. Paint more of that picture. It doesn't necessarily always have to be a visual thing. 
Like you don't have to describe the way their jaw moved or something, but you can add more words to capture more of that stuff rather than just try to give them the, what's the one word I can fit in? Like we're doing a crossword puzzle and we're like halfway through and we're trying to figure out the word. You don't have to race for that one word. Just describe things. If it takes two sentences, then it takes two sentences. If it takes 10, it takes 10. All that stuff can be fixed. All that stuff can be edited, revised, tweaked, polished, changed, challenged. You just have to put it on the page first. Don't, don't race for those adverbs. They're not, they're, well, I should say more clearly, they're very rarely getting you where you think they're taking you. Great question. Anything else or shall we march on? Shall we? Question four. Is the pandemic trend over? If so, what's the hot new or the new hot thing? Well, pandemic fiction is kind of over. You can still use it. Like it's not the end of the, if you're, first of all, it's a trend. Trends matter about as much as you knowing how much lint I cleaned out of the dryer today. Like it's a trend. It comes, it goes, whatever. Pandemic is technically no longer the hot trend. It's just not. We're all sort of over the pandemic. We're fatigued and traumatized by it. And in a lot of places and sources and people, we're all sort of pretending or, or they're sort of pretending that it doesn't exist anymore. And it's done. You know, we, we took away the political part of it. We took away some of the medical rules. And now we can be free to contract a plague that will kill us or scar us. That's fine. That's what we want, right? We want to be free. But the pandemic trend is over. Publishers are no longer like hungrily gobbling up pandemic-related things, be it doctor-nurse, doctor-patient, anything like that. Just, nope, pandemics are done. What's it, What's in its place? Oh, you're going to love this. You're really going to love this. Um, trauma? Trauma is the new hot thing. Now, I don't mean trauma like I'm going to write edgy shit like I'm 14 and I'm finally allowed to curse, so I'm just going to write whatever garbage I want to write. But trying to capture the post-pandemic existential crisis, trying to capture the effect of trauma on people, that's the new current trend, whether we're talking about women's fiction, whether we're talking about badly traumatized characters and first-person epistolaries or whatever, trauma and suffering because it's a baseline thing that can be splashed out through all the different genres. That's the new hot thing. I don't like it. I think it's gross. I think it's exploitative. I think it's going to engender a lot of writers to produce things that are specifically too far and too hard. And it will be clumsy and it will be inelegant and it will be more exploitation and it will be more about, hey, I'm going to make things that talk about trauma and suffering because that's what's popular as opposed to I have something legitimate to say about the suffering. I think it renders compassion a little lean or a little absent. I don't care for this trend. But now you know what it is. So please use it as your please use it as your own discretion, let's say. On we go. Question five. What can I do if I can't find the climax in my romance novel? Okay, look. What you want to do is you want to use at least 
two fingers and you want to kind of like hook them a little like you're trying to like scrape gum off the bottom of the underside of a table. All right. You get that motion or like you're slowly signaling someone from across a room that kind of like hooking come here gesture master that you'll be fine. But that's not really what the, what the question is asking. The question is asking, independent of it being a romance novel or not, the question is asking, what do I do if I've structured something poorly? What do I do if I can't figure out what exactly the high point of my story is? What do I do if I can't figure out how to tie together all my stuff? Okay, that's a better question. Here's how you do it. First of all, figure out what should the high point be. If I'm walking through my story and I talk you through it, okay, there's this happening, that happening, this happening, that happens, this, 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 and this, and this, all the way through. What's supposed to be the big moment? Like if we're fighting a bad guy, the bad guy fight is probably going to be the climax of the story. If we're talking about the moment of great risk where the hero has to risk it all and see what happens, that's probably your climax. It, it doesn't really, at this abstract level, it doesn't matter if you've written it yet. It would help. It'd be nice because we're talking about it as though it's written. But what's that moment of great high tension and danger and risk where when the protagonist wins or at least scores something critical and serious, the reader can celebrate? What's the knockout punch to the enemy? What's the, the, the way the hero wins in the end? Find that big scene. Find that big moment. In a romance novel, most of the big climaxes have to do with the reunion or resumption of the relationship relative to a plot or an element or a character that interrupted it. You know, it's, it's the, the two fated lovers who, who sneak off and get back together, even though their parents forbid them. And, and Jerry Orbach says that Patrick Swayze can't dance, right? Like nobody puts baby in a corner or it's the, the moment where the kid who doesn't believe in himself crane kicks the blonde kid in the face. There's your climax. It's your moment of great high tension. It's the moment of, oh my God, I can't believe this is it. It's when Rocky knocks out Clubber Lang. It's the big moment. You should have one of those, and you should be able to figure out where it is somewhere in your story, and hopefully it's far enough along in your story that the reader has been invested this entire time. It's not like you're doing it in the first opening pages, and then everything's just kind of like, well, that's my story. Like you want to make sure you're you're pacing this thing out and laying this thing out correctly so that you're building to the climax so that you've got this scene and we've got to get there and the character has to learn and grow and be challenged and discover stuff and the bad guy gets to grow and challenge the hero more and grow and grow and grow and it's this little arms race between good and bad. And we add more things to it and we overcome some obstacles and then finally we have no choice but to like confront one another and that's the moment. Figure out what that is. Write it down. What you want to do, if, if you need like a quick and dirty way to write it down, go get a piece of paper and just line after line, vertically, one line, one line, one line, one line. Walk through everything that happens scene by scene or chapter by chapter in your book. Start off doing chapters, but honestly, you're going to want to go by scenes. And then when you get to the, the moment of like, okay, this is the thing, whatever it is we've been building up to this entire time, hey, that's your climax. When you can't find it, because you haven't written it, go write it. When you can't find it because the story doesn't have one, well, that's a different problem. And how we solve that is by looking at what every character wants. What does the protagonist want? What does the love interest want? What does this point of view character want? What does that point of view character want? What does the antagonist want? 
generally your antagonist, whatever their want is, their their most incredible attempt to get it is generally the climax. Generally, not always, but generally. And what you want to do and what you want to frame this with is figuring out what everybody wants and then how, over the course of the story, they're going for it. Okay, character A wants, uh, I don't know, wants ice cream. So what are the 1, 2, 3, 4, 22, 37, 95 steps to get ice cream? Character B wants a phone call. Okay, what are the however many steps to get the phone call? Figure out what it should be and then work backwards through your manuscript to see where it should go. Do that once or twice out loud to yourself. You will figure out how to write it into your story. Great question. Thanks for letting me make like a real sexy joke with the terms of service on all the streaming things I'm streaming to. Go me. All right, on we go. Question six. How can I get better at marketing without taking too many risks to possibly ruin what I'm doing already? Hey, hey, we're going to have a minute here, you and me, okay? I don't like some of the words you used in this question, and um, I'm not going to, this isn't about me making fun of you. This is about me coming to you straight. Ruin is really sticking out to me. So is too many risks. All marketing has risk. All everything has risk. Going out of your house, putting on those shoes, going down that flight of stairs, writing that paragraph, giving it for feedback, querying. Every single part of every single thing we do has risk. Because who knows what could happen if we think about it in a big existential way, everybody's going to freak out all the time. But instead... We mitigate that risk by expertise, experience, want, interest, and hope. Marketing is risky because there's always a chance that either no one's going to notice, people will say no, or people will say yes. And that scares us. That scares us because we can't necessarily know what's going to happen. It scares us because we don't always know what we would do once one of those three things happens. And it scares us because it seems like in order to have one of those three things happen, we have to do a lot of very scary shit. You're always going to take a risk marketing, whether it's pitching, whether it's querying, whether it's jumping on this thing, whether it's putting a camera in your face or a microphone in your mouth or whatever. There's always a risk. And yeah, it's possible that you will jump onto a stream or jump into a podcast or write a blog post and you will say something as well-intentioned and well-meaning as you might be, you will say something and somebody's going to go, well, fuck that guy. Or I can't believe all they do is whine. I can't believe all they're doing is talking about this one thing over and over. Like that's, I don't like that. It's cringe as the kids say. Yep, that's a risk. I run that risk all the time. I talk about like, oh man, if you want to support me, go check out the Patreon. And I run the risk of people like the Patreon, I'm not doing that. And then they leave and never come back. You run the risk of like, oh man, I want to tell you about my book, but maybe you, you know, you've got that anecdotal evidence, that fear because you've got, you know, dumb people around you. You've got that fear of like, if you talk about your book, someone will steal it because that's not a thing. But the, the point is you can always ruin what you're doing already. Sure, absolutely. But you could also succeed. Like, it could be okay. We don't really afford ourselves that luxury. We don't really give ourselves a chance for it to be okay. 
we don't um, we don't think like that. We tend to think more negatively because reasons. But um, there is always a 50-50 chance that that pitch, that blog post, that statement, that podcast, that recording, that this, that that, that X, that Y, that Z is exactly saying to someone what they need in that moment. And you have to try. Because if you don't try, how are they going to know? You got to try. And it's in that trial, in that I'm just going to give this a shot and see what happens. That's how you get better at marketing. Not because, how do I say this? Too many people determine or define better at marketing as, oh my God, I've got more people. Oh my God, I got more sales. I must be better at marketing. No, because that's, that's just on, that's on people. That's other people. That's, that's their choice to come to you. That's their decision to spend their money. You, you encouraged them, but they still had to choose, right? They still had to decide between you and whatever else they could buy. That's on them. Don't take away their agency. Don't take away their power. You're getting better at marketing because you're more willing to try things. You're more willing to be honest. You're more willing to be vulnerable. You're more willing to show up in places and spaces where you might be uncomfortable. You're more willing to stand up and say something in a space where you're afraid to because you've never been there before. You're willing to go somewhere and you're willing to take the risk, even though you know, oh man, I could open my mouth and say the wrong thing and ruin whatever. But it could also go okay. It could go better than okay. Or it could, I could be talking to silence, you know? You always have those three options and it's a flip of a coin as to what happens. Knowing that is how you get better at marketing. Yep, I could, it could go either way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. I'm going to try marketing over here. I'm going to try saying this. I'm going to try saying that. And I got to tell you, most of the time, half the stuff you're going to put out isn't going to get noticed. And that's not because you suck. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're wrong or dumb or whatever. It's just because it's not going to be noticed. It's just not. There's a lot of time and space in the world, and everybody's not constantly checking out everything. So you get better at marketing by trying. You get better at marketing by giving yourself a chance to actually succeed. You, you get better at marketing not by mastering another master class at marketing. You get better at marketing by trying things that are more authentic to yourself. Good, bad, punk rock, emo, screamo, goth, casual, preppy, nerdy, whatever, whatever adjective you want to assign yourself, that's, that's on you. But you try. Just try. It's going to make a huge-ass difference. Just try. That's how you get better. Are there any questions? I see more people came in. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? I made the mistake earlier today of like reorganizing my phone and now I can't find any damn thing. So I'm constantly like scrolling left and right, trying to figure out what the hell, uh, what the holy hot hell, like, where did I leave this app? So forgive me if I get quiet for a second, I got lost in my own damn phone. Questions, issues, quandaries, 
existential dreads. Nothing? Shall we move on? Let's. Question seven. Why am I having such trouble committing to a writing schedule? Well, there are some specific reasons I can't answer because I don't know you. I'm, I'm, I was not consulted in your making of this writing schedule, so I can't say in specific like the exact, oh, obviously it's this, but I can give you a couple general pointers. How's that? More than likely what happens when people have trouble committing to a schedule is they have very little time for any number of reasons. They have kids, they have a job, they're busy, they're tired, they're chronically ill, there's you know a billion other things going on. They have reasons why writing has to be scheduled in order to happen, right? And they feel bad about it because they want to do more. And they, they're willing to sacrifice to some degree. They're willing to write while the kids are in the bathtub. They're willing to get up early. They're willing to do X, Y, and Z. They're willing to bend as best they can without harming themselves, without like, you know, depriving themselves of something important. But it's still not enough. So they feel guilty. They feel bad. And then they when they try to when they get a chance to make a new writing schedule, they overcompensate and they get real aggressive with it. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like do three hours a week. I'm gonna like, you know, not just get up early, you know, on my work day, I'm also going to do like two hours on the weekend, or I'm going to write every hour, you know, an hour every day, no matter what, no matter how tired I am. And they hold themselves to a very inflexible, very high, very unreasonable standard in an effort to try and like demonstrate to, I don't know who somebody, uh, demonstrate that they're a committed, serious writer. They're unwilling to give themselves that permission. They're unwilling to give themselves that label. They're unwilling to call themselves dedicated and serious without this incredibly impractical, nigh impossible to follow schedule. Like in order for me to be a good enough person, I have to be doing this. Like I'm training for like a major MMA battle. And, and it's, it's not that you don't have to, do that. You don't have to psych yourself out and drive yourself over the bend in an effort to show up as more serious. So my gut tells me just through years of experience that most of the time people who have trouble committing to a schedule is because their schedule is unrealistic relative to things like their energy and their time. Another reason why people have trouble committing to a writing schedule is because they go the other way. The pendulum swings way far back in the other direction and the writing schedule's just too inconsistent. When I get an hour on a Saturday, I'll do it. But then they, they look at their next six Saturdays with all their kids going to different summer camps or this, that, or the other, and all of a sudden their time is not really theirs. Or they set up such conditions like, okay, I'll write when, you know... When I get this done, that done, and I'm home from work, and I have energy. And all of a sudden now you're writing. This thing you say you want to do is suddenly conditional on three other things that you have no control over. And writing becomes this sort of like holy grail. This, this thing I will get down in the future way over there if, if the stars align. All right. So the writing never happens because the conditions to make it happen never, never consistently show up. 
So those are our two extremes. Either we feel guilty and we overcreate and we overrigidify, or we go the other way and we're just kind of like, I want to write, but uh, my life is a basket case. What am I supposed to do? The other reason is you're just generally indecisive. You know you want to write, but you're not quite sure. It should To you, it seems like it shouldn't be that easy. It's not supposed to be like, oh, I'm writing. Oh, I have like 20 minutes. Let me write something. Oh, you know, I, I seem to always have this free time from 3 to 4 o'clock on two days a week. I'm just going to use that to write. To you, it, it, it has to be something more complicated. It has to be more like regimented or, or constructed because it's supposed to be a thing. It's supposed to be something. And it's not. It's not supposed to be anything. It's supposed to be, hey, I have some time. I could use that time for a lot of things. I am choosing to use this time to write. Generally, expectation is what determines writing schedule. Expectation relative to what you're supposed to do or how it could be done or what you need to do or how you should have been doing it like this or not doing it like that. Expectation does way too much driving when it comes to scheduling. Write when you can, as best you can, as much as you can. That doesn't mean like slave over every word until it's perfect. I mean just do your best. If today that means 10 words and tomorrow it means 1,000, then great, good job. If, if it only means every day I get 20 minutes and I'm going to use 18 of those 20 minutes, cool, in two minutes you're going to doze off, awesome. Write as best you can, when you can, as frequently as possible. That's plenty fine for a writing schedule. If you're looking at those books, you're looking at those blog posts that talk about famous writers and their schedules, please understand that a lot of those writers came from positions of some kind of privilege that just doesn't exist in this day and age or that writers were treated generally different, especially if you go far enough back, they were, you know, a class unto themselves as artisans and artists, and they were afforded lots of different things like patronage or the ability to just kind of like hang out all day. Whereas now we've, we've reversed that process and we've made our art and our creation and our individuality and our productions and our personalities subservient and subordinate to how much of a good worker bee we are or how much of a good drone we can be. That's, that's a shift that happened. Thanks England. That's a shift that happened a couple hundred years back and we haven't unfucked ourselves from it, but that's why we have trouble committing to a writing schedule expectation and rigidity. Relax a little bit, take a deep breath, let it be an irregular thing that you do consistently and you will get the progress you're looking for. Absolutely. Without a doubt. On we go. Question eight. This probably should have gone closer to the other marketing question, but here we are. Why are some people really, really into talking about marketing strategies? Am I doing something wrong that I'm not really concerned about it? First of all, you're not doing anything wrong if you're not really concerned about marketing because it's possible that you're somebody who's not going to market your book. You're just writing to write, and that's totally fine, and marketing doesn't matter to you because you're just seeing if you can do it. And that's super cool. No problem. However, however, there are some people who are way, way into marketing. Like, they're into marketing the way I'm into wrestling or root beer. Like they want to talk about the best way to use, you know, 
Amazon individual unique number systems. They want to talk about rankings. They want to talk SEO. They want to talk about algorithms. They want to talk about content windows and, 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 you know, distribution of things and daily platforming and, and all this stuff, all these terms that frankly, the majority of people don't need to know and their lives are not improved by. But they're talking about that stuff because they're they're not looking at art. They're looking at product. They're looking at commerce. And that distinction is important because we want to make a distinction sometimes between talking about our art and talking about our product. Because for many writers and creators, it turns into a product eventually, and that's how we make a living from it. But when we focus more on one thing than semi-equally on both things, we lose sight of the other. When we get way into the weeds on marketing, we start talking about it as though all the books are uniform. We start talking about, oh, well, it's just about, you know, how do I rank up here and how do I, you know, get listed and this and that, rather than, hey, how do I form a pitch based on the thing I individually wrote? How, what words would I use to specifically tailor this story? How do I make this thing I made sound more engaging? We wipe that away. We pretend to some degree that doesn't exist because now it's just about ranking. It's just about the algorithm. It's just about the math. For a lot of people, talking about marketing is also a cover. It's a shield. It's a hat. It's something to disguise yourself with. It's easier to talk about marketing because marketing is somewhat concrete. There are rules. It's objectifiable. We can turn it into something that we can maybe win. I'm making air quotes. Win at, meaning we can figure out a strategy that nets us some money. And that way we don't have to worry about our insecurities in what we wrote because we have this strategy so that no matter what we write, good, bad, or otherwise, we will win some kind of sale. And once we start thinking about it that way, we are not that far removed from thinking about how I have to be better than you because I need more sales than you. And that's just greed. That's not art. That's not the purpose of writing. That's the purpose of capitalism. That's just nonsense we use to distract ourselves. The point here is that for some people, marketing is part of the process. It's how they're going to tell other people about their art, about what they made, about what they do. And hey, if you want to get on board, cool, awesome, come on board, you're always welcome. And if, however, some people take that and go, oh my God, I have to do better than that person, that person, and that person. Everybody's got to come to me. I've got to be the best, or I've got to know the most, or I've got to do this so that I don't fail because... What I'm not saying is I'm very scared of rejection and I'm very scared of failure and I don't want to be seen as wasting my time or be seen as somebody who's not good enough because instead of using my art and my happiness as a measure of whether or not I'm good, I'm using my product as a measure of, of being good. That's where the problem comes in. So we talk way more about marketing in an effort to sound professional, even though the professional is the one who should be talking about art and craft. And if you're not concerned about this, if this is just like, oh, whatever, I'll deal with it later, that's fine. That's totally fine. You can't do that forever because eventually if you want to reach those places and spaces where you're published or where you've got a book deal or this, that, or the other, you are going to have to do some marketing. But if you're at this point where you're like, hey, man, I'm just trying to write my first draft, then yeah, don't, don't even sweat marketing. We're not even there yet. You're not even in the neighborhood of being there yet. Don't worry about it. 
And even honestly, if you're pretty confident that you will figure it out as you go, because ultimately all you have to do is just talk about what you love and you've always been very good at that, especially when we're not talking about books, you'll be fine. Just because you won't maximize the algorithm doesn't mean you're shitty. It just means you're not maximizing an algorithm. That's fine. It's not the end of the world. I know the world will tell you that it's the end of the world because the world needs you to like feed the algorithm and hail the algorithm and all that. But at the end of the day, it's up to you what you're concerned about. And at the end of the day, it's up to you about whether or not you make some art. Also, side note before we move on, a lot of people are way into marketing because they're trying to sell you a method for marketing. Don't, don't dismiss or discourage that either. That's how you end up in those situations where some experts like, if you give me several hundred dollars, I will tell you what you already know. Only I'll use flashy language. Ooh. Don't do that. Don't, that's, that's some scummy behavior. Don't do that. Yes, you should pay experts for their expertise. Yes, you should help people. Yes, if you know what you're doing, you have a responsibility to help lift other people and do it. But don't do it in an exploitative way. Don't confuse value yourself for get as much money as possible because it's not the same thing. There you go. Those are my points on that front. On we go. Question nine, what is a panic loop? Well, there are two kinds of panic loops. And I have to admit, I, um, I got a I fault here. I messed up. I did not uh, look at the rest of the question as to what kind of panic loop uh, you meant when you asked this question. So I'm going to cover them both. There is a narrative panic loop and there is an authorial panic loop. Let's do the narrative panic loop because that's easier, well, slightly easier to understand. A narrative panic loop is when a character starts to panic and we divide it into three stages. The character is somewhat worried about a thing without evidence. Oh man, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, my main character has to go take a test. I don't know how it's going to go. Oh, my main character has to go to, you know, talk to their boss. I don't know how that's going to happen. We lack evidence or the character lacks evidence. So we, the reader, are left to fill in that what if space with some emotion, with some anxiety. Oh, maybe the boss is a werewolf and they'll bite the guy's face off. Who knows? Maybe they'll get yelled at. Maybe they'll just have a cup of coffee. Maybe it'll be weird. Maybe it'll turn out to be robots. Who knows? That space lays the groundwork for the panic loop. The panic loop builds, and suddenly we are confronted with disparity of evidence. I expected one thing. I got something else that I was not prepared for. And no matter what that unprepared for thing is, even if it was positive, because it wasn't what I expected... I, the character, am interpreting it as, oh shit, things must be really bad. Let's do, a, let's do a, an example. So let's suppose uh, the character has to go confront, or has to go, like, they get called into the boss's office. Maybe about the Johnson account. Who knows? So they get called into the Johnson account. And, or, or they get called into the boss's office. First part of the panic loop, they don't know what's going on. Oh man, it could be about anything. They get into the office and they discover it's about the Johnson account. Okay, no problem. Now we get to navigate how the character deals with the Johnson account. But they they start thinking because they're 
prone to worry. Oh my God, I messed up the account. I'm going to get fired. This is terrible. Except that's what they're expecting. Except what the boss does is say something like, oh, you totally nailed it. They just signed on for a million corporate space bucks or whatever. And because the reality of what the character got doesn't meet their expectation. The character perceives this as a further problem. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean? I, they, they signed on. Oh God. Now the pressure has elevated because now they're now, now it's even more important that I not mess up. Oh no, I've made things worse. So the character escalates the panic loop. And that escalation in panic, that escalation of worry, that escalation of anxiety allows our character to lens possible behaviors through the expectation of how something could be. If I'm always assuming that everything is a problem, I'm going to act in certain ways that maybe cause some things that weren't problems to be problems or to cause friction or tension or problems somewhere else. Like, I, I start creating self a combination of self-fulfilling prophecies as well as just generally being a pain in the ass where things are a problem. That's a panic loop, and it builds and it builds and builds until a character has no choice but to deal with their panic or their panic deals with them. They break down, they freak out, they, they, they react in some way. The panic builds to a certain point or a certain action, good or bad, and then it is relieved. Like we, we suddenly let the air out of the balloon Everybody exhales for good or for bad, and then we move on. That is a narrative panic loop. It's very useful for creating a level of connection between reader and character when a character is nervous. And it doesn't have to be over a whole book. It could be a course, you know, a course across two scenes or whatever. But a panic loop is just about building tension, assuming the worst, and having a character act on it. An authorial panic loop is sort of the same in the sense that it, it is an escalation of panic, but it is done differently. Authorial panic loop generally has to do with an inability to say that you're doing a good job and that everything's okay. For instance, you might see or you might have an authorial panic loop. You might get into a panic loop about whether or not what you wrote last week was good when you go hand it in for feedback. Or you might worry that, you know, you wrote your query letter, but you're not entirely sure it's okay and you don't really know what to do. So you might start panicking about that. Is, is it okay that I did this? Is it is it all right? Or maybe you're still in like an early, early drafting stage and you're like, I'm going to write a story about, I don't know, um, where chinchillas is that okay? Like, is that fine? Can I do that? And you start asking these questions and filling in this space where you just don't know the answer and you want to make sure you're doing everything okay and you want to make sure you're all right and not in trouble and not a problem because that's how you've been conditioned to be. And instead, you start panicking and freaking out that, oh God, maybe maybe it's bad that I did this. Is it wrong? Did I, did I do this kind of scene wrong? Did I do this chapter wrong? Did I do this whatever thing wrong? That's, that's a panic loop for an author. It, it gets countered, it gets dealt with by a combination of things, like reassurance. Hey, you did fine. It's great. Good job writing a query letter. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's a query letter. It's a draft. Hey, good job. You wrote a chapter. That's awesome. We can make it better. No one needs it to be perfect right away. You just needed to write something. Reassurance goes a long way at calming panic. 
the other thing that can soothe or or solve a panic loop is a general sense of confidence that at least you know no matter what even if it's not perfect even if it's not done even if it's not right i'm making air quotes for all of these things you're doing your best you might not have any framework to go by you might not understand a particular thing i remember when i first started talking about loops and in different structures and theories and like everybody in my discord freaked the fuck out oh my god what do you mean a loop i don't understand loops what what loops what do you mean loops oh my god loops and i'm like it's it's fine if you don't get it but they're like oh no loops loops are serious i mean loops are useful lots of people talk about loops loops are good but if if you're not down for loops that's okay it's cool don't don't look for reasons to freak out okay it it's it's gonna be okay you're gonna be fine don't look for reasons to assume you've done the worst don't look for reasons that you're seconds away from failure don't look for reasons that it's always going to be hard and it's always a problem and god damn it's just one more shitty thing i know that's really hard I know it's really hard to push back against that, especially if you've been telling yourself that or if you've been told it for as long as you can think straight. But I'm telling you, in terms of creating, in terms of making whatever you're making, there are going to be times where you have no clue if you're doing okay. And I promise you, you're doing okay. You might not be doing everything smoothly or maximally effectively, but you're doing okay. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to get help. It's okay not to know the exact super specific thing. Just do something. Try something. Do your best. Everything's figure outable. Everything is manageable, but it can't be managed without you doing it. Okay? Don't panic. You're going to be okay. There's always help. There's always something you can do. You might not like all the things you can do, but there's always something you can do. Are there, as I get more tea, I got to put a light on. It got dark as hell in here. Uh, I'm going to go put a light on and drink more tea. Any questions from anybody in chat? What the hell happened? There we go. It got crazy dark in here. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess the sun is starting to set. Wow. I looked up from the monitor and it was just I'm sitting in a little cave with all the windows open. All right, whatever. It's fine. Questions, anybody? Else we will just keep going. On we go then. Question 10. How do I transition from being a writer published one time in an anthology to someone writing a novel? Remember way back about an hour ago when we talked about writers and authors and there really wasn't a distinction to be made and it wasn't really a thing because it's just two different words describing the same thing. I want to bring that discussion back just for a second to answer this question because you, you just write. The, the transition you make from I was published one time in an anthology to now I'm writing a novel is that you are now writing something different than you wrote before. Possibly, presumably, what you're writing now as a novel is intended to be longer 
than what you wrote in an anthology, but it's not like the rules for how you write it have changed. There's still going to be scenes. There's still going to be characters. There's still going to be plot and world building. There's just going to be more of it, but it doesn't all of a sudden take on extra steps. You're just going to do more of the same thing on a larger spectrum, on a bigger field. There, there's no, there, there's no like you have to use us like a special, I don't know, type with your toes or something, or you're only allowed to do it when the sun crests over the mountain. Like that, there's no, there's no magic trick to this transition. You, you just, you just write something else, and I'm always. I'm both intrigued and a little frustrated by people who ask this kind of thing. Not, it's, you're not wrong. I'm not, I'm not making fun of you. I'm not yelling at you. You're, you're fine. But why, why do you think there's a transition? Like, did somebody tell you there was a transition? Did someone tell you that, oh, writing a novel is immediately more serious, sir? Like, I, I guess. Sure. But it doesn't have to be. You can just write. You can just write. Um, there might be more expectations. Like you start thinking about what a novel is and what a novel means and you kind of get in your head a little bit and you freak out. Sure. Or, or you expect that novelists, I guess, have all their shit together. Whereas somebody, when you were writing that, writing at one time in an anthology, you kind of didn't know what you were doing, but you were, you were just giving it a try. Um, I hate to tell you this. It's the same process writing a novel. You're just giving it a try. It just happens that your try is bigger than the other try. You will get better at it. It will come with more practice. You will get more comfortable. You'll get more experience with it. But at the end of the day, it's still the same process. You're just going to do it more and maybe better over time. Like it, there's no, there's no, merit badge there's no decoder ring there's no like secret handshake ah you've been inducted into the secret club now you're a novelist nah you just you just do more of the same and it'll be fine just write more write more that's that's how you transition write more and it'll be fine question 11 do i really need a newsletter really and the answer is no, no, you out there right now do not really need a newsletter. For some people, communicating to their audience is helpful through a newsletter. I have a newsletter. You can go to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com and when you see the little pop-up for the newsletter, you can put your name in there and bang, zoom, you can get the newsletter. You can go to, you know, if you want something a bit more concrete, a bit more like structured and crunchy, you can go to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.substack.com and you can get the Substack newsletter. I choose to use those things because that's how I choose two of the ways to communicate with my people. That's important to me. But if I didn't have the audience I had, if, if I was still starting out, if I had half the audience I had, less than half, I probably wouldn't do both of them. I'd probably just do one of them. Maybe, depending on how I engage my audience or what I did, if I, if I only streamed, if I only had a podcast, 
I probably would not do a newsletter at all. If I was just every day you could download my thing on whatever you get your podcast from, I probably wouldn't do a newsletter. Newsletters are great when I have multiple things to say to some level of detail to an audience who expects me to have multiple things to say at some level of detail. But if I'm just talking about the one thing, the one thing, and I'm not giving it a lot of detail, and I'm not really probing or trying to do anything like that, why, why would I need a newsletter? You out there writing your book, writing your first draft, writing your second draft, still deep in the I'm making this up as I go along level, tier, process, whatever you want to call it, you don't need a newsletter. You don't have enough people to justify paying for one. You don't have enough to say to warrant writing it all down on the regular. It's okay to not have a newsletter. They're very popular. They can be very successful. I have an entire newsletter where I all I do is hype people up. All I do. You can get it at the Patreon. Patreon.com slash John helps you write better. It's the top tier on Patreon. I will send you a weekly hype email. And they are... The text is short, but the audio can run anywhere from like two minutes to like, I think my longest one was like 25 because I had something to say, but it's designed to motivate you. It's designed to encourage you. It's designed to just be somebody in your corner telling you like, yeah, you can totally kick some ass. I love doing that stuff. I love that. I wish more people would sign up for that. I wish I could help more people do that. It's one of my favorite things to do every week. I look forward to it. But I, I didn't need it. I decided to do it when more people asked me for it. When more people were like, hey, John, you're great at motivating people. Could you motivate me on the regular? There you go. But if you're out there drafting and you're like, I don't know how to write chapter four, you don't need a newsletter, okay? Later, down the road, when you've got more of the book underneath you and you want to grow an audience because you want to hype for pre-sales and build things up and you want to grow into multiple books and you also want to talk about your art, your video game, and this, that, and the other, sure, newsletter, once you start to diversify your portfolio, thanks, Wu-Tang Clan, you know, as you grow with more things, bring that newsletter in. But from the jump, nah, you don't need a newsletter. It's okay. On we go. Question 12. Do you have any tricks for stopping the writing, deleting, writing, deleting cycle? Can I just say I don't like the word tricks here? It makes me think about like a shitty magician. It's it's not a trick. I don't do tricks. I'm not a trained show pony. I have some tools. I have an idea of what you can do so you can stop writing and deleting and writing and deleting. In fact, I have two things I will tell you so that you can stop writing and deleting and writing and deleting. Here you go. If you want to call them tricks, okay, they're tricks, silly rabbit. Two things. Here we go. One, um, it's good enough. Leave it the fuck alone. Let's just call it that. You get two, two, two tries, two tries at any one thing. After two tries, it's good enough. Leave it the fuck alone. Even if it's not right, even if it's not in its final form, even if you're going to go back and change it later, right now, two tries, it's good enough, leave it the fuck alone. Maybe I should put that on a t-shirt. It's good enough, leave it alone, two tries. Second, 
every time you catch yourself writing and deleting and writing and deleting and writing and deleting, I want you to stop. Take your fingers off the keys for a second and ask yourself out loud, why do I keep deleting this? And see if you can answer yourself with something other than because it's not perfect or because it's not right because there's no such thing as perfect. And right is whatever you decide. Whatever you put on the page is right. You cannot make a wrong choice. If you are still in the act of making a thing, it can look like whatever it looks like and it can be whatever it is. It doesn't have to be perfect. There isn't perfect. No one needs it to be perfect. It just needs to be on the page. So when you find yourself writing and deleting and writing and deleting and writing and deleting and constantly second-guessing yourself, say to yourself out loud, why? Why am I doing this? And then take a deep breath and just write something down. Anything. Even if you write yourself a note in all caps, hey, put something in here later. Just write something down. Okay? Two tools, tricks, ideas, techniques, tactics, whatever you want to call them. See if that makes a difference. Because writing and deleting and writing and deleting comes entirely out of expectation and uncertainty. And what you're trying to do is create a thing that cannot by definition be perfect not because you're a bad person not because you're broken or stupid or anything but because nothing in this universe is perfect nothing you're trying to make a thing be a thing it can never be and no one needs it to be that thing in the first place they just need something on the page because you can always write another sentence just like we talked about with those adverbs about an hour ago you can always write another sentence you can always expand your idea you can always try again but rather than keep us trying again and trying again and never making forward progress, we do two, two tries, and then it's okay, leave it the fuck alone and move on to the next. It doesn't have to be perfect before you move on. It just needs to be. Let's go to that last question for the night. Question 13. Which books on writing are the best for new writers? Oh, boy, howdy. I'm so glad I have tea for this. Let me get a mouthful, and then we are going to have a talk about best and new writers. Remember how we talked about earlier this idea that we have to make hierarchies and we have to rank people, and we have to say that if you do this, you're better than if people who do that. Or if you don't do this, you're not as good as somebody who does this thing. Or if you use this software, you're better off than somebody who uses that software. Or if you're writing this kind of book, you're just better as a human than that person who's writing that kind of thing. You know, all that stuff. People who talk about books and writing books do the same thing. They want to know the best because they want to put them on their shelves. Oh, man, what are the best books? Give me, give me four. One, two, three, four. And then I'll, I'll read them and then I'll, I'll just be better at writing. Uh, no, no, you won't. And that's again, not because you're wrong or stupid or anything. It's because it doesn't work that way. What kind of thing are we talking about? What exactly does best writing look like? Technically flawless, get some grammar books, get a style manual. What are we looking for? Words, get a dictionary. You want to talk about motivation? 
okay, well, are you motivated by a writer telling you that it's okay to write? Or are you motivated by people who wrote really cool stories that make you excited to read them? I can't tell you what the best book is because the best book, one, serves a very specific and different thing. And two, everybody's going to have a different one. Because I'll tell you that one of the best books you could possibly ever read is The Count of Monte Cristo. But that thing's like 1,400 pages long, and not everybody's going to sit down and do that. Or I'll tell you that, hey, you know, there are certain books from the 70s and 80s that are, are pretty crappy, but everybody still really likes them. And that's, that's okay. Yes, there are very popular books. Popular does not mean best. There were many popular people when we were in school. They were not the best humans. Don't confuse best for Swiss Army Knife. Oh, it's the best. It solves all my problems. There's only one thing in this world for creating art that solves your problems, and that's creating more art. And if you need a book to constantly tell you that you should be creating art when you swear up and down that creating art is important to you, um, that's not the book's job. If it's really important to you, it wouldn't matter what a book told you to do because you'd be doing it because it was important to you. New writers fall prey to this all the time, this idea that like if I had a certain thing, if I had a kind of computer, if I had the right kind of software, if I, if I had the right number of RGB lights I could stream, if I had a good lens on my camera, if I, if I played this kind of game, if I had this kind of console, if I did this and I did that, then I'd have all the right best stuff and then all of a sudden I'd be like super successful, right? You've heard this. You maybe even thought this. I know I've thought this. And I got all the equipment. I bought the good microphone. I bought a nice arm. I bought a whole mixer. I bought a big-ass monitor. I bought a fancy keyboard. And uh, I use all these things all the time, and the audience never showed up. I'm not pulling down, like, big major streamer numbers. I am not threatening, you know, the Chugs Army position on Twitch. I'm a, I'm a dude who maybe gets, like, what, four, five people? Nobody's really threatened by me talking to four or five people. I'm streaming on YouTube to I don't know how many folks, but it's not exactly like cornering the market. Best is nice and best can facilitate things. Having a good microphone makes it a lot easier for me to do a lot of things, but it doesn't automatically guarantee that what I make is exactly what somebody needs. I record a podcast every day and I can watch the metrics and say that, okay, this one episode that I, I was really feeling good with really hit and was really successful. But the next day I was equally jazzed, but it just, it just wasn't for everybody. Don't get hung up on best. Like it's going to fix things. Don't get hung up on best. Like it's going to be this master stroke that's going to unlock something within you because the only way you're going to unlock that is within yourself by giving yourself permission to try. That's kind of been a theme we've had tonight. You just got to try. There is no one single best book. There is no one single best keyboard. There is no one single best microphone. There is no one single best website. There is no one single best way to do any of this art stuff. Loads of different genres, loads of different books, loads of different creatives, loads of different techniques, loads of different classes, loads of different courses, loads of different fill-in-the-blank. 
find what works for you at the time you need something to work and take it as far as you can, but realize there comes a point where what you got cannot take you any farther and then it is time to find something else. Whether you start with Stephen King's on writing and then move to Annie Lamott or whether you start with, um, I don't know, you start with reading a set of books you did as a kid and then you realize that another series in a, in a same kind of vein might still be what you want or who knows what. You started writing with a, with a little keyboard and you wanted something bigger, you wanted something clickier, you wanted this, that, or the other. Find the tools that help you right now. Take them as far as you can and realize that some tools will be with you forever, but not all tools will. And not all tools need to. I, I can't give you the best books for new writers. Because also, how do I define what a new writer is? The first week? First six months? First year? Somebody who just did their first draft? What if your first draft took you 20 years? Are you still a new writer? You've been doing this 20 years. How do we determine new writer? Who gets to make that judgment? Not me. I don't want that ability. I don't want that power. Get the tools that help you do the thing you want to do. Use them as best you can, as long as you can. And when it's time to move on because you need more functionality or you need more this or you need more that, then go do it. Go look for them. Try it again. Build a whole big toolbox. Lots of different tools, lots of different approaches, lots of different experience, lots of different exposure. That's how you get better at anything artsy. That's how you get better at anything, anything. That's the kind of advice I wish my dad told me. You just got to try. Use whatever tools you can. It'll be okay. Are there any questions from chat before we get out of here for the night? I don't even know who's here. Hello, chat. It's good to see you. I have not clicked this button all day. Thanks for being here. Shall we get out of here? To the outro. Thank you, each and every single person who was here. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your time. Thanks for caring. Thanks for showing up. I really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me talk about all the different things, whether it was what to do with your fingers, how to find a climax, how to figure out what works and what doesn't, adverbs, all of that. All power to all people. All power to all strikers. Take care of one another. Love yourselves. Tell people they matter to you. Be good to yourself. Do something nice. It's okay not to know what's going on. It's okay to take care of yourself. It's okay to feel good. It's okay to make yourself happy. We are halfway through the week. For some of us, it's been a month of a week. For others, it's just been a couple hours. It's okay. I love you. You matter. You're doing great. Keep trying. And I will talk to you very, very soon. See you.